morning. If you don't have a Bible, there is one, should be one in front of you. And as Justin said, we'll be in chapter 2 of Ephesians this morning, and we will be in verses 8, 9, and 10. Aren't these decorations just beautiful? Let's give the uh, decoration people, (laughs) I mean, jeez. Yeah, thank you guys. Um, All right, let's read these verses, pray, and we'll dive in. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. God, these verses are so pivotal. They're so key. Thank you. Thank you that we get to meditate on these verses this morning. Holy Spirit, please enliven your word to us. Help us to digest them, to know them, to know the truth that we have been saved by grace. Thank you so much, and thank you that that changes our every day. Lord, may it change our tomorrow and our week and our year and our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we are finishing a three-week series that we titled Death to Life. The Apostle Paul in verses 1 through 10 has been describing the roller coaster biography that is ours, if you're a Christian. And it started off pretty bleak. In verse 1, right there at the beginning, it says, And you were dead. And like Justin said, week one, that, that says a lot in that opening phrase, You were dead. And typically that would be the end. Paul describes us as having been spiritually, socially, and even biologically dead. We were a lost cause at the end of the line, dead. Our prognosis was not good. But then we hit verse 4, but God. We found out that because of God's great love for us, he made dead people alive. It says he made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And why? Why did he do that? Verse 7 sums it up. So that he might continue to shower his kindness on us 
forever. It was because of his love he did it so that he can just continue to shower his love upon us. We all love a good story. That's why, especially the last couple days, Thanksgiving conversations, I'm guessing at least one of the conversations you had was about the latest show you were watching. Because we, we love stories. Some stories make us thankful for our current circumstances. Anna and I are watching Made right now, M-A-I-D on Netflix, and it makes us thankful for what we have in our family. Some stories make us long for more meaning than our lives currently seem to have. Some stories we can see ourselves in, and we might, we might like that, or we might not like that. You know, I see in that character a bit of myself. This story that Paul tells in verses 1 through 10 is one of those stories. You know, I hate that I see myself in verses 1 through 3, but I do. I do. That's the cool thing about Christianity. It, it doesn't whitewash the wickedness that I see, not just out there, but in myself. But I can also see myself in verses 4 through 7, and I absolutely love that. If you're not a Christian yet, I pray that soon not only you'll see your need for God, your sinfulness, but also that you'll see his eternal, unwavering, unconditional love for you as displayed in what Christ has done for you and his offer to write you into this story, having made you alive with Christ. Now this morning, we're wrapping up this Death to Life series by talking about the miracle means As in, what are the means by which God has accomplished this miraculous feat of resurrection, of resuscitation, of transmitting from dark to light, from death to life? Now, Paul has already given us this answer. He interrupted himself mid-thought in verse 5. He said, God made us alive together with Christ. But then there's an interruption, he says, and he can't help it. By grace you have been saved. And then he continues on with his thought. So why are we returning to this question this morning? It's because Paul does not want us to move on to anything else until he reiterates this answer no less than five times in different words. You know, personally, I like to jump to the, okay, what now part. What does this amazing story that I'm written into have to do with my daily life? What does it have to do with the choices I make, the career I choose, what I do with my free time, my relationships? And Paul thinks those are good questions, but he doesn't let us get to them without first getting this idea of grace. 
But when we do digest this idea, this concept, this reality, this beauty of grace, it changes everything. Now we're going to use verse 10 as sort of our outline for what this grace accomplishes in us and through us, how it impacts our daily life. And it's a lot. We're going to learn that because of God's grace, we move from taking selfies to being a portrait that God is painting. Because of God's grace, we move from having to be self-made to having purpose. And we move by God's grace from being self-reliant to walking a path that he has already prepared for us. But before we talk about how this grace affects our daily lives, we have to reckon with the supremacy of his saving grace. And in the context, if you reread verses 1 through 7, it's actually surprising that Paul feels the need to write verses 8 and 9. If, if you were to reread all the way through verses 1 through 7, you would be hard-pressed to take any credit for what happened to these dead people. But for Paul, it's important that we understand this before we move on to anything else. Let's reread verses 8 and 9 and take each phrase in turn. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The miracle means by which God has accomplished all of this is grace through faith. Grace through faith. Now, what is the relationship between these two things, grace and faith? If grace is God's lavish and unmerited favor on an undeserving people, what is faith? Faith is believing that God has lavish and unmerited favor for you. If grace is God forgiving your trespasses and sins because and only because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, what is faith? Faith is believing that what God says about you is true. You are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior has already done everything needed to save you. Faith is only effective when it is attached to something effective. You know, I can have faith that these arms will allow me to fly if I jump off a building. Will that faith save me? No. But I can have faith that my parachute will deploy if I pull the cord. Will that faith save me? Yes. Is that faith necessary in that case? Yeah. But it's the object that the faith is placed in that makes faith powerful. You know, I don't want to brush off 
the tension that exists between God's sovereignty and humans' responsibility. If God is sovereign over everything, you know, do I have a choice in the matter? Yes. But if I have a choice in the matter, does that mean he isn't sovereign over everything? No. There is indeed a mysterious tension that exists between these two truths. But here in Ephesians, it's not a tension worth giving up on. It's more of a beautiful partnership. By grace, through faith. It's just like Justin pointed out last week. From verse 4, God is rich in mercy. And what does that mean? What does that correspond to for us? We're poor in righteousness. Faith is simply a recognition and an acceptance of our need and his resources to meet our need. So Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And Paul could have easily stopped there. That's that's a pretty solid point. But he keeps going. He wants us to get this idea of grace. He goes on and says, this is not your own doing. You didn't resuscitate yourself. It's not possible. You couldn't have. And then he says, it is the gift of God. Now, a gift is only a gift if the receiver of the gift does not pay for the gift. And God didn't scan your Amazon wish list and say, okay, I'll pick out what you've already kind of decided on. No, (laughs) we weren't even asking. And he provided us this gift. You can't take credit for it. And he goes on. Not a result of works. And I love this because, because he's going he's gonna to return to the idea of works in one verse. And yet, the order is significant. Paul and every other New Testament author emphasizes the Christian's responsibility to do good works. But Paul doesn't want us to get the wrong idea. The works that you do, even the ones that you should do, have absolutely, positively nothing to do with your having been saved. Nothing. And why is that? He goes on and says, so that no one may boast. And remember where God is going with this whole operation to repeat in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show what? The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. His glory is the ultimate goal. How is he going to get that glory? By saving you by his grace, by putting you on display having done all of the work himself. So right there, Paul reiterates the answer that's by grace. It's it's not you. It's, It's the gift of God. It's not works. 
so no one can boast. Do you get it? Do we get it? Do we understand grace yet? Not quite, but as best as we can this morning. And then we can finally reach verse 10, which is one of my all-time favorite verses in Scripture. I love it because it faces head-on the what now question. And since I got to college, since I moved out of my parents' house, the decision about what to do with my life paralyzed me. Kindergarten through high school, I just did whatever I was supposed to do, what people asked me to do. Get good grades, they said. Okay, yeah, I can do that. No problem. Don't get into too much trouble. Okay, I can do that. Do extracurricular things because it'll look good on college applications. Yeah, okay, yeah, I can do that. But then when I finally turned 18, moved out of my parents' house, and had the opportunity, the, had the necessity to decide what I was going to do with my life and found out that no one was going to tell me what to do anymore, what do I want to do? I have no idea. And I didn't. I had no idea. It just paralyzed me. That season of indecision, of, of wrestling with what I was going to do, just, I mean, I had many panic attacks those first two years of college. But the cool thing was, instead of telling me what to do, God just allowed that season to exist. And you know what that season did? It drove me to my knees. It drove me to my knees before him. I was desperate. Here I was being told, do what you want to do. Find meaning. There's nothing. I have no idea. But I have that season of my life to thank for convincing me of my need for God. Let's reread verse 10. Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what has this grace accomplished in us? Well, first, we are going from selfies to portraits. Right there, the first statement. For we are are his workmanship. But remember, Paul didn't get, he didn't let us get to verse 10 without going through verses 8 and 9. So we can put a by God's grace before everything we learn this morning. But right there, for we are his workmanship. Before we do anything, we are something. By God's grace, we are. Don't miss this. This is the key. Whatever you think you're supposed to do with your life, with your career, with your free time, 
with your money, in your relationships with family, friends, coworkers, spouse, kids, Facebook friends, whomever. Before you do anything, God has made you something. And look at what it is that you are. You are God's workmanship. Now your translation might say something like, you are God's handiwork, or masterpiece, or work of art. And it's a somewhat difficult word to translate. It only occurs one other time in the New Testament. And when it does, it it just refers simply to God's creation. But it also occurs in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as well as outside of Scripture, the, the word is used. And it can refer not just to any creation, but if you, if you give me the word, an artisanal creation. Something that someone took time over, like a potter's vessel or an author's manuscript. Something someone was working on and returning to, fixing up, changing, tinkering with over and over and over again. And by God's grace, before we do, we are. By God's grace, we are a portrait painted by God. We no longer have to find our own meaning. We no longer have to make selfies of ourselves to present to the world. We no longer have to put a filter on to, to touch ourselves up in Photoshop to make sure people see the cleaned up version of ourselves. God is painstakingly making us. And like Justin talked about in the catechism, it is in us. Notice the pronoun in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. And for me, he's definitely not at that tail end where he's like putting the finishing touches, maybe a couple more little happy trees. He He's still in like the early stages. Big brush strokes. Ah, oh, no, not that. This, you know, oh, but not too much, you know. He's still making big waves, <laughs> changing my heart in big ways. And that's painful. But if it's him doing all the work, why am I all bent out of shape and impatient? And if you flip forward two pages, you'll see that Paul tells the Philippian church in chapter 1, verses, verse 6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I love that. The author, the, the artist who made me into a work that he's going to be proud of, He will finish it. We don't have to fight our PR battles, not to ourselves, not to others. By grace, you are the very handiwork of God, a work of his hands. He's the one making you into who you are becoming. So we go from selfies to portraits. But then second, we go from self-made to having purpose. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now that word for conveys what? Purpose. Now this is, this is where God invites us to have purpose in life. We are his handiwork invited by him to participate in the very work he himself is doing. God hasn't just freed us from sin, from death, from slavery, from what we were. He has freed us unto meaningful purpose. Did you know that if you don't have purpose in life, you are seven times more likely to be addicted to pornography? Seven times. Just because you don't have purpose in life. Now, boredom is common to humanity. It's part of the fall. And some people even like to be bored. My brother Jordan always said, yeah, I like to be bored. I never understood that. But when you're capital B, bored with life, now that is a hard place to be. And God wants to invite you into purpose, to having an aim, having a direction, something to get out of bed for. And he makes us in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Now, that word for good works is pretty general. It could mean so many things, and it occurs in many places. And of course, it does, at least partially in in all of our lives, refer to God's participating in God's grand redemptive work of salvation, sharing the gospel. That's something we are all, if you are If you have submitted yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ, part of what that means is that you're looking for ways to invite others to go with you. But God also has just generic plans for the flourishing of humanity. And we all participate in that in different ways. What this means basically is that work is good. All kinds of work. Having a purpose in life is so key to thriving. But we don't have to go out and find meaning in life. You know, if you're someone who woke up on your fourth birthday and was like, I have a dream and this is what I'm going to do, that's fine. (laughs) That's not me. I woke up when I was 31 and had kind of that, you know, and it's, so we either have to lay, lay our dreams in front of the Lord and he'll give them back or he might tweak them a little bit or a lot. Or we have to lay our lack of a dream before him and then he will assign us his dream, his purpose. We don't have to be self-made. Does the meaning you find when you're self-made last forever? No. But we can find our purpose and meaning in life in Christ. When Calvary the Hill was young, like maybe two years old, um, my brother Riley was a, was a part of it. And he came up with a vision for the sound ministry, the, the person who sits back there at the sound booth. And 
He took it partially from Romans 10. Do you remember this, Justin? Okay. Uh, so Paul is discussing salvation and the spread of the gospel. And Paul says in Romans 10, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then for the sound person ministry, my brother added, and how can they hear without a sound guy? <laughs> the seemingly small role of sound guy takes on a new meaning when it's attached to that. And I, <laughs> and I used the same um, method when I was developing a personal mission statement earlier this year. Um, and as many of you know, I, I also work part-time as a cancer research nurse at Swedish Hospital. And so I used Romans 10 and developed my twofold sort of personal mission statement. It said, well, from Romans 10, it says, you know, how can they hear without a preacher? And I feel like the Lord has called me to preach. So there's one part of the bivocation, right? But then how can they hear if they die of cancer? That's true. Someone needs to work on that. I feel passionate about that. I, I want us to move the needle on cancer. If Jesus takes another 100 years to return, like I want us to be doing a little better about cancer because cancer sucks. And I think God agrees. And that purpose is situated in the grand purpose of God. But that could be anything. How can they hear if they miss their bus? How can they hear if the software is buggy? How can they hear if they don't have a place to live? God may be calling you to a different vocation, but he is definitely calling you to glorify him in the vocation he's already given you with renewed purpose. So from selfies to portraits, from self-made to purpose, and finally from self-reliant to a prepared path. Right there at the end of verse 10, he goes on and says, the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God doesn't save us, you know, rescue us, give us a big old purpose and say, good luck. No. He he prepared things for us to do along the way. He prepares a path for us to walk. And guess what? He's there along the path the whole way. He already prepared these works for us. He only calls us to walk in them. And this is in contrast to verse 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we're no longer walking as self-made, self-reliant people. We're walking on the path that he has already prepared. He's delivering you work after work after work. Good work. Not work that earns you anything. The work is a gift. The work itself is a blessing to do. 
that we get to participate with God. He gives us stuff to do. Thank you, God. Otherwise, I'd be so bored. We go from self-reliant to dependent on what he has prepared for us. Now, like I mentioned earlier, he may reveal to you what your life's work is going to be until you die. And great. Or he may reveal many works one by one over the course of your life. And you only see one ahead. Only see a couple feet in front of you. That's definitely been the case for me. But what is the key? The key is that word walk. You know, it implies a slow but sure progress. Who are you walking with? Who is leading you? What will you encounter on that path? Walking with God along a path. And that's an image that's all over Scripture. A couple of the Psalms take the cake for me. Psalm 23 says, He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And here's the kicker. He leads me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then in Psalm 139, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And then in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God tells long stories. You know, in a sense, your story with him is still being written. But in another sense, he already wrote it. And now he's just telling it. We can lean back and relax into him. We can seek him to know what are the good works that he has prepared for us. And we can know that he's not going to leave you alone to do them. Remember, he is the one who's going to finish the work that he started. It's by grace. And the cool thing is your salvation, you know, you're, you're having been redeemed, rescued, saved, resurrected. That is not the only gift of grace. You know, if you look forward one page at chapter 3, starting in verse 7, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given what? what? What was it? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul calls his calling, his anointing, his, his task laid out for him as an apostle. He calls that a gift of grace. And it's the same for us. We have been saved by grace, but also the Lord has given us grace in what we get to do for him and when we do it we 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 don't take credit we go thank you for letting me do something for you that's meaningful and lasting that you look on and you think is worthwhile i get to participate 
Now that is a gift of grace too. And we'll find it's actually all of us that participate in this gift of grace. If we pass forward again in chapter 4, verse 7, it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Like we said, it's, it's a we. You know, we are the body. We all are made, we're different members of the same body. We all have different gifts. The Lord has given us all unique gifts to use for his glory. So his grace also includes these unique gifts that he's given each one of us to accomplish what he has for us to do. Now, as we close, I want to just end with a couple practical things. First, you know, just like Paul does here, spend more time contemplating God's grace toward you in Christ than what you're going to do for God. Spend more time being with God, understanding who you are, than what you're going to do for him. Every day, carve out time to sit in his presence. Not just to, to ask, you know, for your list of requests. Do that, of course. But not, and not just to determine, you know, what you're going to do, but understanding in his presence who you are. And who are you? You're his workmanship. You're, you're something he's proud of, something he's investing time in, some, something he, he made, not of yourself. And then also, when you screw up, don't go straight to verse 10. Go through verses 8 and 9 before you do anything. You know, I screwed up. Well, it's by grace you've been saved. Awesome. I screwed up. Well, it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Awesome. I screwed up. Well, it's not, it's not a result of works. So no one can boast. Awesome. Go there. Go there with God before you start getting up and getting back to work. Because he wants you to know who you are before he tells you and has you doing things. By God's grace, because of Christ, we have an identity, an untarnished identity. We also get purpose. We have things to do. Praise God. What more do we need? All right, let's pray.